Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? In this episode, we're going to be talking about a species many of you will probably be familiar with, Thuja occidentalis, or the white cedar, sometimes called the arborvitae. Now, this is a horticultural celebrity, so to speak. It is widespread in cultivation, but in the wild, the story is a little bit different, especially along the edge of its range. Joining us to talk about this is Sarah Johnson, a voice you've probably heard on this podcast in the past. She is a conservation ecologist with a strong focus in botany and a very talented and passionate person at that. And she's going to talk to us about some really cool work that she's done on Thuja populations along the edge of their range in the greater Chicago region. I don't want to steal any of her thunder, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sarah Johnson. I hope you enjoy. All right, Sarah Johnson, welcome back to the podcast. Now, for everyone listening, if you supported the show through Patreon, this is a voice you'd be hearing a lot more of. But today, for those that don't support the Patreon yet or have not listened to previous episodes, let's start with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Johnson, and I'm a plant ecologist with the Illinois Natural History Survey which is a research institute within the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. That's awesome. And so the latest episode that you were on, we talked about some of the work you did for your master's research on Macbridia alba. And today we're yep. talking about some other interesting, fascinating realms that you have sort of ventured into throughout the years uh, and really kind of looking at plants from more of an ecosystem, human impact sort of perspective. So welcome back. Happy to have Thanks. you on talking about this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to announce that um, this work is the result of a, a lab project. Um, my grad advisor, Dr. Brenda Milano-Flores, um, facilitated this work with the Illinois Tollway. So we we're doing some work up in the Chicago region. And it is my first official publication, which I'm <laughs> thrilled about especially since um, this work's been a few years um, past now. We started this work in 2018, I believe. Um, so it's been a, a few years since we conducted this work. It really has been that long, huh? Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of my work while I was in Illinois was actually out of state. So it's nice to represent <laughs> Illinois a little bit, too. So yeah. yeah. And you mentioned Illinois. Obviously, most people, if they're tangentially familiar with Illinois will think Chicago and a lot of this work took you up to Chicago but that to me is a unique area not because of the city not because of anything human related but because of its wonderful glacial history yes it has a lot of diversity in terms of types of ecosystems so I think when people think of Illinois um, at least I I think of the Grand Prairie which is definitely a large portion of the central part of Illinois but the cool thing about Illinois is it's a long state, um, top to bottom. <laughs> it's about six hours to get from north to south. So you encompass quite a lot of habitat in that span. So everything from more um, like bottomland forests to, um, you know, bluff and river communities, you get all of those things within Illinois. 
Um, and so what, what makes it really neat is those areas are, are differentiated in some ways by what was glaciated and what was unglaciated. So um, after the retreat of continental ice sheets, at the end of the last ice age, there was this Wisconsin glacier, which covered a lot of the northeast portion of the state. So think of um, the area surrounding Lake Michigan. And that was around 25 to 20,000 years ago-ish. And this glacier advanced and it retreated lots of times and it deposited moraines and sand, which um, one cool thing I learned was that it actually filled the ancient Mississippi and changed its course to where it is today. Um, it created sand prairies and dune habitats. Um, that melting ice flowed to create lakes and streams and ravines and bluff communities. Um, so it's it's really formed a lot of um, really unique features throughout Illinois. That's probably my favorite thing about people like us that grew up up north that experience the landscape and then come to try to learn the landscape is you really can't avoid the glacial history. I mean, it is the most recent epic in our history. And when you start to learn about sort of the geology and the resulting biology that's come from it, you realize just how much of an influence that ice sheet continues to have on the landscape today. Yeah. And the assemblage of, of plants that grow there, um, you know, really, I, I had no history in geology and learning, um, you know, especially on another project that I've been working up in the ravine ecosystems up there is um, just been really fascinating to learn about. And um, this current project that we're talking about today is um, primarily um, about fen ecosystems. So fen ecosystems are a different type of, of wetland habitat, and they're formed when these depressional areas of the landscape fill with water, but they're not just rainwater fed like bogs are. They're also um, fed by upwelling groundwater like springs mm. or seeps. And again, speaking of the geology, they really reflect whatever geology there is in the area. So if it's um, mineral rich bedrock like limestone, you get calcium deposits or calcareous fens and seeps. Um, and they're generally alkaline due to that. So um, that groundwater feeding is really, really important to maintaining fens as they are. If they get too much sediment buildup or actual sphagnum mats, you do get more of like a bog habitat over time, which is is also really neat. Right. And that's an important distinction to make is it's easy to look at a wetland and say a wetland's a wetland, a wetland, but they all have different hydrologies. The hydrology influences the chemistry and the chemistry influences the plants. And that to me was the big sort of mind blow was when you finally see a fen and you get to terms with what's going on, it isn't this acidic bog where the pH is super low. It, it, it's, it's really percolating up through what I called growing up liquid rock or the, <laughs> yeah, the, just the, the water is so hard up there. I can't tell you how many uh, chunks of limestone or calcium carbonate I've had to peel off of aquarium filters in my ears. Oh, I remember showering at my grandparents' house when I was a kid and it was just like mineralization all over the the shower head like it was like it was nuts so <laughs> <laughs> so therein lies why fens have hypothetically a different plant community than a bog per se per, yeah exactly and they are at risk like bogs are for peat mining and other types of mining for minerals um of course, also they're they're not well liked. Unfortunately, they're filled a lot for mm. development purposes. 
Um, you know, there are areas that people are generally scared of swamps, <laughs> bogs, mires, all the spooky places, which are always the places that I'm drawn to are the spooky places. <laughs> um, but yeah, fens were pretty common throughout the Midwest. And then, um, you know, they're globally at risk, I would say they're sure. a rare ecosystem, but they are definitely rare now in Illinois. Um, I don't know how many fen ecosystems there used to be, but there's only about a dozen left in Illinois now, which is, I, I think I read fewer than around 250 acres. Wow. And of the 250 acres left, calcareous fens are even more rare um, with only around 14 acres remaining. And that's Dang. mostly in that northeast portion of the state. Where which a ton of people yeah. happen to also I was, live. <laughs> I was going to say, which ironically is the heaviest populated area of the state as well. So yeah, yes, very much at risk. I mean, there's probably work done on this, but I, I always kind of cringe when you see sort of distributions of rare organisms or habitat types, and then you overlay that with like a proposed or historical development map. And you're like, dang, couldn't we not have hit something a little less unique? Right. Right. And these... These are so unique too. just, I mean, just because it's such a unique habitat type, but the plants that grow there, are of course, really unique because of the way that they're groundwater fed and that they're mineral rich and they're alkaline. And so all the plants that live there are adapted to these types of conditions. And sometimes they're kind of more wetland seep that you would think of like, um, uh, skunk cabbage is a common plant you'll see in the seep areas, um, but you can also have more graminoid type prairie fens. So mm. they're more sedge habitat, um, you know, unique plant species that grow there. So it's it's a really, it's a wide ranging area. I know there's some different places that I've, I've never actually been to. There's bluff spring fen, um, which is a really unique graminoid fen up in the Chicago region. Um, but there's also a lot of kind of floodplain habitats that are fed by seeps as well. So it's, you know, kind of a, a wide ranging term, but. Yeah, that's why I struggle with the term community or plant community. I understand it as a useful tool, but even in these hyper specific scenarios, when you say fen community it can mean a lot of different things and yeah. it depends on what the dominant vegetation is and, and the players are always sort of a hodgepodge admixture and you know, seed dispersal and, and distribution into habitats that are super isolated and weird like these is this whole topic unto itself. But, you know, I think of like seeping fens that are almost on cliff faces versus mm -hmm. like a marl fen that we used to find in New York where mm -hmm. it's more of a flat swampy sort of habitat. And like you could not have picked two different, more different right. vegetation communities, but they're still a fen. Exactly. Yeah. And this, the seep fen, um, where you said kind of like a slope seep fen is definitely the type of habitat we're talking about in this project specifically. Um, so the area around Elgin, Illinois has a few seep fen areas, one, which is, um, kind of a large, um, fen called the Fox river fen along the Fox <laughs> river, Illinois. And uh, one species that, that grows in these fens in the Chicago region is Thuja occidentalis, so um, North American white cedar, which I think a lot of people are used to seeing planted in abundance all over in cultivation, um, also called arborvitae. But the type of habitat that it grows in naturally is very different from <laughs> the habitat it grows in in your garden, for example. 
So natural populations, at least in the Chicago region and up north, um, mostly persist in these bluff communities um, along Lake Michigan, along the Illinois and Fox Rivers. So they are kind of hanging on on the uh, cliffs that you'll see on, on rivers and streams. And I think the key to that is that they're sloping areas. Some of these areas have seeping groundwater um, or they're on the slopes to seep communities. And they're sometimes rich soils, but they're also shallow soils that are well-draining. So it's very important for Thuja occidentals to have well-draining soils that aren't um, consistently inundated with water. Um, so that's, I think, an important thing to note because we're mentioning fens and the fact that they're groundwater fed and they're typically wetland habitats. But when you're seeing Thuja growing, you're not seeing them growing in the wetland soils. You're seeing them growing where the water table might be high, but you also have these sloping areas uh, nearby. Right. And so it's it's a cool tree for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's huge cultural significance to it and stuff like that. But, you know, you look at a species that is so widespread in cultivation and then look at where it grows in the wild and you go, there's a huge disconnect there. And I'm always fascinated by plants that have different behavior, so to speak, in the wild than they do in cultivation, or at least cultivation would suggest they're not as finicky as they seem yeah. to be in the wild. But when you look at, say, a bone app distribution map of Thuja occidentalis, sorry, you looked up pronunciations before we started, <laughs> um, <laughs> you realize it, it truly is a northern species that you know follows Appalachia down, but probably doing that at high elevation. And when you see it in places like northern Illinois, you kind of start to ask like, okay, is this just the edge of the range of that species? Yeah, exactly. And it definitely is at the extent of its range in this area of Illinois. You don't really see it extending into the Midwest really at all. Um, of course, the northern areas like Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan um, and New York State, I think there was that really cool paper that came out about the ancient cedars along mm. um, the Niagara Escarpment, I believe. Um, so, yeah, just to think about the the types of conditions that they normally live in, I think is um, is is really fascinating. Yeah, if you um, do botanizing, you see these tiny thuyas holding on. Thujas, geez, I'm going to keep doing that. Thujas hanging on on these cliff faces and then you go to someone's yard and you're like, oh, there's 30 foot tall one right there. Yes, it's it's wild. And it's wild too to see the difference in, you know, some of these smaller stunted trees are because they're very long lived plants. So they could be thousands of years old and just be very stunted because they're they're growing in a less hmm. nutrient rich area. So I think that's um, really cool, too. But yeah, so it is at the north, uh, the southernmost extent of its range in northeast Illinois. Um, it was actually listed as state threatened in Illinois, but was delisted in 2004. Hmm. I think um, generally the population numbers were stable, so it was delisted. Uh, but it is, or it at least has been, a plant of concern watchlist species, which is a Chicago Botanic Garden monitoring program for plants that are not quite yet rare or not le yet listed, but are considered rare. And they are doing a lot of monitoring to, to try to protect those plants or at least understand better what their distribution is. Right. And so as I understand it, a lot of your work was trying to track down viable populations of the species before you even got to sort of the conservation side of what you do as a botanical oriented ecologist. 
Yeah, we had to try to figure out where these native populations were. A lot of them are not very easy to access. As I said, many of them <laughs> are on bluffs in on the lake or along rivers and streams. And so those are typically a little more challenging to get to. Um, a lot of them are on private property behind people's homes. Uh, so so access is, is definitely difficult. Um, but there is one extensive population in the Elgin area of Illinois, which, like I said, is the Fox River Fen. And it's split between two natural areas. One is called Trout Park, and that's a, a preserve. And then there's also a place called, uh, which we, we call the Chicago Junior School, because <laughs> it is actually the site of a school, which is uh, really neat to see because it's kind of a in-progress being restored building that was uh, a school that children went to and um, is in a beautiful little habitat. But anyways, um, what makes this site unique is that it's a pretty healthy stand of Thuja occidentalis. But this natural area, which is now split into two parks, again, Trout Park and Chicago Junior School, is bisected by the I-90, which is one of the busiest toll roads in (laughs) Illinois. And this population uh, was surveyed by Illinois Natural History Survey botanists uh, a few years ago. Um, Connie Carol Cunningham. So many C's. (laughs) She's a great botanist. An amazing Um, human being. (laughs) Eric Ulasek. I'm sure other people were involved as well. Many of the great botanists at the Illinois Natural History Survey. They noticed that the trees at Chicago Junior School looked pretty healthy. Um, They were very tall stands, um, in good condition. They had quite a lot of fruits on them, but the plants on the South side at Trout Park were less healthy. So they were looking more damaged, uh, not producing a lot of fruits or cones, I should say, and just generally, um, didn't look as vigorous. And so, you know, kind of started to wonder, could there be maybe something going on here in terms of, you know, this is one ground fed ecosystem. The north side is that Chicago Junior School that looked fairly healthy. And the south side is generally a little less healthy, um, less individuals overall. And maybe there's something going on here in terms of something with the groundwater. Um, you know, the, if the mature plants aren't looking very healthy, we're not seeing a lot of recruitment um, what are some of the pressures that are are happening in this ecosystem that are are affecting the health of these plants? Yeah, I love this idea of botanical surveys turning into bigger research projects. People make observations that's totally underrated in today's academic world. Absolutely. And then research builds off of that. But I want to back up to something you had hinted at earlier is access to some of these populations and the fact that most plants occur on private property where most people are not too keen on having a whole team of people coming into their backyard or on their remote property even and, and poking around um, for a lot of different reasons. But when you think of like the threats plants face and the way property works in the United States today and, and many other countries, it's, it's this case time and time again, where we're pretty decent at dealing with protected lands and and doing stuff with plants on protected lands or, or national park, that kind of thing. It's the private land, which is most of the land where a lot of stuff is probably happening out of sight, out of mind that, you know, even if you knew plants were there, you probably would have a hard time getting access to those sites. Yes, 
definitely. And that is sometimes facilitated by working with landowners. Sometimes they're really welcoming. They want to know what's on their property. They're really excited about it. Good. Um, sometimes not so much. Again, like you said, they're just generally suspicious, which I completely understand. <laughs> um, but, you know, in this case, there's so much private property in the Chicago area, especially the Chicago suburbs. Um, you know, it's it's a tricky balance to you want to make sure people are engaged with the community, the natural community around them, because, again, some people are really interested and engaged and want to know more. And you also want to be careful to not really blame anyone in particular for for some of the conditions that you're seeing in some of these sites, because, sure. you know, people um, really care, I think, in some ways about the the habitats in their own backyards. It's just it's they're complicated. Uh, and sometimes knowing how to manage for them is difficult. And so fortunately, in the Chicago region, there is a lot of proactive management or a lot of organizations like the forest preserve districts and things like that, that work very hard to educate landowners about their waterfront property or, you know, different types of plant communities in the area. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of how many times I've talked to someone that's like, I'd love to burn, but the neighbors aren't cool with it or Hey, access to this is great and everything. But just so you know, I just bought this place. It's right. 30 years of someone else's gardening, quote unquote, or mismanagement right. that's created so many more issues. It's going to take another 30 plus years to fix. Sure. And that's definitely, um, you know, a topic we can explore at a different time. I did a really interesting project in the Chicago ravines <laughs> along Lake Michigan. And that is just such an incredible plant community that is in some ways only there because it is privately owned, um, and not public access to the water or, or different, you know, so there's different sure. sides to the same coin, I suppose is, is what I'm trying to say. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, these, some of these habitats remain in pe literally people's backyards. So. <laughs> but coming back to Thuja, you think of what you were dealing with. There's this observation of a population bisected by an interstate or a highway, at least, and then the observation that some are doing worse than others, but overall something's going on. And when I think of Thuja, I think of deer candy, deer freaking oh, love yeah. these plants and deer are a big issue up there because of mismanagement. But then you think of all the other things that come alongside human encroachment and alterations to the hydrology, just chemical input to the hydrology. And the big thing up there to me is road salt. Oh my gosh. It yes. saves tons of accidents from happening, but it creates yeah. a litany of ecological issues. Yes. So yeah, we'll definitely put a pin in the deer comment because that is something that we not only observe, but you know, especially later when we're talking about recruitment of these individuals, deer are certainly <laughs> a problem. They are <laughs> problematic in these environments and in many environments, but, um, yeah, with salts, I mean, if you return back to the idea and remind yourself that fens are completely dependent on unaltered flow of groundwater, they're extremely sensitive to any change in pH, um, any introduction of heavy metals or pollutants. Uh, you know, these, these ecosystems are very sensitive. And again, when you consider they're only fed by rainwater or groundwater, the quality of that water can definitely affect the plants that are growing in those habitats because they are adapted to the types of conditions that they evolved in. So 
when you introduce anything novel to those environments, even over a long period of time, really, that's, again, where we were wondering, is there something to be said about these road salts impacting these mature individuals of these populations? And you mentioned road salts. Um, the types of salts that are used in road salts are primarily NaCl, sodium chloride, but there's also a lot of other types of road salts that are used too. Um, but they they can get into the groundwater from other ways too, from you know agricultural runoff or septic system runoff. But yeah, up north, I mean, salt spray and salt runoff is just ubiquitous. <laughs> and like you said, saves millions of lives. Well, okay, millions is maybe a little dramatic, but you never know. <laughs> it gets pretty hairy up there sometimes. If you've yeah. ever driven through a snowstorm up north, it's kind of rough. Um, but sodium chloride in and of itself is considered neutral, but when you introduce chloride and sodium ions to the groundwater supply, it can do a lot of different things. And all these other compounds that are used in road salts as well, they can reduce water permeability, increase corrosivity, release heavy metals, especially from in the soils. Um, in the soil, it can interfere with plant nutrient uptake, uh, can increase alkalinity and soil pH. It has a lot of impacts on soil and water table. And then beyond that, the plants that are growing in those areas um, sometimes have difficulties in terms of um, water uptake and nutrient uptake. It can mimic drought conditions in the soil. Um, some plants that have been in these salt areas are shown to reduce their photosynthesis. So generally there's, not with all plants, of course, there are some plants that are salt tolerant or are even halophytes where they grow in places where there is quite a lot of salt and they do just fine. They're evolved to deal with that. But not all of these plants are, especially the ones growing in these ecosystems, are quite as well adapted. Right. And so, you know, it's one thing to go up and kind of draw lines in the air and say, yeah, we see salt is getting in here. We also know that the plants are doing well and go boom, smoking gun right there. But Ecology is a mess. And you right. listed a bunch of reasons why salt might affect plants. Maybe some plants are more susceptible in some ways than others or that halophytic situation. Sure. So it's not enough to just say, yes, we found detectable levels of salt in the groundwater. Ergo, these thujas are suffering. How right. did you all go about trying to understand what this might be affecting from recruitment to potentially older individuals? Sure. Well, the reason this was kind of taken on as a lead is that the um, Illinois State Geological Survey has been doing fairly consistent monitoring at ground um, groundwater wells in that area for a few years, especially there was some construction on the I-90. There was a uh, reconfiguration of that road, and so they had been monitoring it pre and post the reconfiguration. Um, mm. So a lot of the people that work through the Research Institute are contracted to, to kind of do some of these assessments as well. So the positive, and again, what made us kind of lean into this is not only do we know that the Illinois Tollway uses on average about 45,000 or more tons of salt per year on the Illinois Tollways um, to maintain safe driving conditions, we, we know that there's been at least a history of monitoring in the groundwater at these sites. So the State Geological Survey in 2020 had a report from their monitoring wells 
showing that some areas did spike from kind of a normal um, or a double normal level of 200 parts per million um, NACL levels to far above 800 parts per million. And so wow. we said, okay, there's definitely some spikes in the groundwater. It tends to happen um, not at the times of year you'd necessarily think, you know, you're using more in the um, in the winter, but then they would kind of flush in either the spring when rains are seeping that down into the ground and into mm. the groundwater. Um, and also, you know, after certain construction activities had occurred. So maybe there was a culvert that was moved and so groundwater had been changed. So there's all these different components that were considered as part of that survey. And so what we thought was that maybe there's a way we can take some data about these populations and try to understand what differences there are in the seeds, for example, as a proxy for maybe what the parental uh, or mature individuals are going through in the environment? Are there any differences in the ability of these seeds to germinate between populations? And we also took some soil samples to see if what was reflected in the, the groundwater was also being reflected in the salts within the soil. That's a lot of things to consider, but I'm really happy you kind of drilled in at the seed stage because, as we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, this is a widely distributed horticultural celebrity. We know that the adult trees can handle vastly different conditions in vastly different climates than what you see them in in the wild. And when you think about the biggest bottleneck to any plant population, it's really that transition from seed to seedling. Yeah. It's so cool that you focused in at that point. Yeah. And we, to be honest, didn't, didn't do a lot of work with the mature individuals, but we did of course take at least, you know, understand how big the populations were. Um, I would say that trout park is about half or less the size of individuals. I think there was around 500 or more adults at adults, <laughs> mature trees yeah. at Chicago junior school and only about 300 trees at trout park. But around 80 or so of the ones at Trout Park were dead. So we were seeing a lot fewer trees. It is a slightly smaller area, so there is that to consider. But a lot of them were no longer alive. So we weren't seeing hardly any recruitment uh, at either site. But like you mentioned, deer are problematic. But also one thing that I learned about Thusha is that these trees generally require nurse logs to successfully recruit and to survive as seedlings. I think it probably has to do mostly with the microsite moisture levels. You're having a really consistent moisture level in that more so maybe than the soil, which can go through some fluctuation in moisture. Mm. But that was the only place that we were seeing seedlings were in these nurse logs at, at either site. And so again, we, we didn't pay a lot of attention to some of the metrics of these mature individuals, but thought if these mature individuals are struggling, maybe again, we can use the seeds as a proxy for, I, I am careful to use the term health because we didn't measure health in adults, <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe we can, we can better understand the stressors that they're going through in their environment by seeing what a impact that's having on their, their prop fuel material. Hmm. And so how do you do that? You just collect seeds and then put them in salt water and see what happens? <laughs> uh, 
wow, Matt nailed it on the head. Really, <laughs> oh. Everyone thinks science is so scary, but <laughs> um, yeah, we, we collected seeds from both sites, um, cones, and then dried them, uh, weighed them to see if there were differences in the weight, the cone weight, the number of seeds. Uh, we also measured them very interesting to measure a bunch of small, <laughs> tiny seeds, but we sure did. We measured a, a lot of different morphometric measurements on each seed to see um, what aspects were larger, smaller, different among different sites. And we also found from other populations nearby from Morton Arboretum in Chicago Botanic Garden, as well as a commercial seed source, just to have some comparisons of more cultivated or commercial produced seed. Mm. And really, uh, I would say at the end of the day, we didn't see a lot of differences in germination. Germination was extremely low, even in control. So without adding any concentration of salt solution to the seeds, hmm. uh, generally the germination was only successful in our commercial seed. So wow. Even the collected populations from Morton Arboretum and Chicago Botanic Garden didn't do very well either. But that could be partially related to the fact that they're cultivated. They may be mm. intermixing with some varieties on site that, um, you know, they're not technically natural populations. But, yeah, germination was um, extremely low even at, even at control populations. Wow. So... We also took a lot of measurements. Like I said, we didn't see a ton of differences in measurements among site, but we did see very low seed set overall. So these trees aren't producing a lot of seed. Um, so not only are they not recruiting, not germinating very well, even at you know zero salt concentration, they're not producing many to begin with. Um, so we we definitely feel that there's at least not a lot of differences in terms of propagule material between hmm. sites, um, between the two bisected sites, but seed set was just generally low. It was, we did have slightly higher seed set at Chicago Junior School, but I think each cone maybe produced like on average five or six seeds. Oh, geez. Um, so it doesn't sound like a lot, especially when they're getting hoovered up by deer, um, when they're not hitting the right spot of the landscape. Um, so really we, we never saw any intermediate seedlings. We might see teeny tiny seedlings recruiting on the ground, but, um, never any intermediate size seedlings, which again, like you said, could be due to a, a few different factors. Dang. So it's a lot of things. And that's really the story of ecology is there's no true one smoking gun. And it sounds to me like you think about a species at the edge of its range or cultivated material far outside of anything approaching natural. And you just see a plant that's kind of pushed to the brink, maybe not doing the best it could, maybe not devoting as many resources to reproduction as it could. Right. And then you add the onslaught of human encroachment, invasive species, overabundance of native species, and then salt. And it's just, it's a sad state of affairs for edge of range plants, especially in a highly urbanized ecosystem. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that you know, this is common in conservation, this death by a thousand cuts. But again, if you're having herbivore pressure already, and then you add this element of basically changing the chemistry of what makes this ecosystem tick, it's it's certainly a component to consider. And 
there's more work that can be done here. We do have other parts of this project that I'm not going to talk about too much because they, they are not currently published yet. But hmm. um, what's really cool is doing a lot of this work with the with the soil and trying to understand the microbial communities, which is um, being conducted by some of our colleagues at University of Illinois, Chicago, Nick Glass and Chris Whalen. Um, they're, they're looking at some of the soil makeup and those communities in those soils and how they differ. Um, again, we did, we did see better germination overall in those control and it progressively decreased as you add more salt sure. to the, to the solution, which makes sense. I mean, that's, pretty ubiquitous across the literature, I feel like. Um, again, maybe we didn't see a huge germination among those sites, but another thing we did sample is, again, we sampled the soil to try to say, okay, are we seeing those parts per millions reflected in the soil as well as the water table? And we did see quite a big difference between soil salt levels at Chicago Junior School and Trout Park. And generally, Trout Park had much higher um, sodium and chloride levels in the soil. So again, we can't say that it's for sure what's going on here. Um, but I would say that the, it, it does show that yeah. there is elevated salt and we know that it's, it's tough for these types of plants to live in those types of conditions. And it's definitely worth more consideration. And I think this extends to not just these types of in ecosystems, which are really sensitive, um, just thinking about the types of communities that live alongside these roads that we can continue to build. Um, you know, this, when I say that this toll road bisects these two natural communities, I mean, it literally bisects the two communities. Hmm. Like you're in the site and there's a banked area and then the throughway is right there. And then if you go down the bank on the other side, you're in the other side of wow. it. So, you know, that water flowing from North to South, is different on either side of the road. Um, so it's, it's something to think about, um, in these types of areas where you have these remnant ecosystems and yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just think of the impact of cutting a community in half. You right. Know, and then you add all of the pressures of the construction, the ongoing compaction and everything else that flows downstream quite literally from yeah. that uh it's it's alarming and so you know kind of early days but it's it's one of those questions like is illinois still going to have thuja populations in the next few decades it's uh, you can't yeah. answer that i know that but it's no. it's one of those things you have to sit and go like this is kind of how extirpation leads to extinction over right. time is these edge of range contractions what's the new edge of range how is that changing and it's it's important that you did some experimental work on this too, because you have much more uh, confidence in the conclusions and, and recommendations, at least from a management perspective to say, no, it's, it's really pointing towards a few major onslaughts. Right. Well, and what I think is neat is that, you know, this work was funded by the Illinois state toll highway authority. Um, you know, there was a lot of other people who helped on this project, Patricia Dickerson, Eric Jansen at the Illinois Natural History Survey, my advisor, Brenda Milano-Flores. But, you know, they all helped with this project. But the Illinois State Toll Highway Authority is paying for research, you know, to understand what's going on in these areas, doing assessments. And I I, I think that's great. Um, you know, at least this information can maybe help guide not just management of these natural areas, but some of the practices that we consider pretty standard at this 
point in sure. human <laughs> human history. Uh, maybe we didn't completely understand when we first started using road salts like this, but now there's quite a lot of research out there and um, just in general that plants along roadsides don't typically do well with these types of conditions. And um, yeah, I also think that it's cool that not only was this funded by them to, to learn about, but botanists that work for the survey saw something unique and different and interesting and said, there's some differences here. And I think that maybe it's worth exploring. And like you said, that's something that has always led to more exploration within the natural sciences to find solutions to yeah. problems is just noticing things and saying that's different. I don't know why, but I I'm interested and I want to learn more. Um, so with this study, it, it was a really interesting side project to me. I loved exploring a lot of the Chicago natural areas. They're very beautiful. And to learn about a plant that seemed very common and widespread and knowing that it's actually kind of at risk in, in, in this area was, was enlightening to say yeah. the least. So yeah. New spin on an old friend. Yeah. So that is really good insights. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about it and for the work of everyone involved in this project. But in terms of where people can learn more about you or the work you're continuing to do for plants and plant conservation, where do you recommend they go looking? Sure. Well, this um, morphometric differences work on Thuja Oxidentalis is very recently published. It's in the Just In section of Botany. Uh, the Canadian Journal of Botany. So you can look up our just in abstract. Uh, full text should be out very soon. And in terms of keeping in touch with me, I recently redid my website. It's sarahannjohnson.com, Sarah without an H. <laughs> and <laughs> I have kind of little synopses about some of the cool projects that I've worked on with links to some of my publications and reports and things like that there. And I am completely and a thousand percent addicted to Instagram. So if you, <laughs> you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm Sylvatica underscore Sarah. And I post a lot of fun pictures from either field work or just hanging out outside. And uh, it's, it's a great way to share and learn more about plants. So wonderful. Well, again, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, happy botanizing. Thanks. You too. All right. Fascinating and important work. I thank Sarah for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, as well as all of her colleagues for putting in the work to try to understand what's going on with this tree in the greater Chicagoland area. This is not a unique story, unfortunately, but it's work like this that helps us get to the bottom of it and make better recommendations for management and just being able to coexist with species on this planet moving into the future. If you're enjoying conversations like this, consider supporting it on Patreon. You can get links to that in the show notes for this episode, as well as links to everything else we talked about in this episode, as well as every other episode that can be found at indefensiveplants.com podcast. Patrons really do help make this show possible. I couldn't be doing it without everyone that supports this show every month. In fact, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Corbin, who signed up at the producer credit level. So they're doing the maximum to ensure this show has a future. Thank you, Corbin. Of course, you can also pick up a copy of my book, 
our merch and stickers and all of those are found at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast as well. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.